into the final message in our Armor of God series. It has been such a blessing to me because if I'm honest, uh, sometimes I, I, I look at what the, uh, James says. He said, the fights and quarrels happen because of what's inside of you. And so a lot of times when things are happening bad, I point to somebody else or even myself and say, that's why things are going wrong in this world. And that's a big part of it. But Paul is clear. There are things happening behind the scenes, this invisible world, this demonic world that wants to prevent us from following Jesus. And Paul's telling us, if you want to make sure to follow Jesus in this broken world that's influenced by Satan and those underneath of him, then you have to put on the armor of God. And over the last few weeks, if you've been here, you know we've talked about the armor of God, the belt of truth, and the breastplate of righteousness, and the boots of peace, the shield of faith, and the helmet of salvation. Those are the first five pieces of armor that Paul says. But have you noticed what they have in common? All of those pieces of armor are defense in nature. So you're putting those things on to resist what the enemy's throwing at you. And we want to play defense, but we also eventually, if we're going to win a fight, we have to play offense as well. And so the Apostle Paul said, put all of these things on to be able to stand firm and defend yourself, but now you have to go after the enemy itself. And of all the things that he tells us, he gives us one piece of equipment that we have to put on. And it's the last part of verse 17 in Ephesians 6. He says, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now we're going to get to the Word of God in a moment, but I thought it would be great to understand what the Roman soldiers' weaponry would look like. What did they carry around to try to go after the enemy itself? And here's what a Roman soldier would have looked like, and you see the other pieces of armor, you see the breastplate of righteousness, you see the gospel shoes of peace, you see all those things, the helmet of salvation. And then also, they would have carried around two pieces of weaponry. The first is called a pilum. Now, a pilum was about a six and a half foot javelin, like a spear, that they would use to be able to throw long distances if the enemy was kind of far away. So they would see him and they would launch these pilums at uh, those who were coming, hoping they would get one to stick and kill the opponent, or they were hoping that this pilum, this javelin, would stick into someone's, uh, um, oh gosh, what am I trying to think here? The shield. I couldn't think of it for a second. The shield. And if it got it stuck to the shield, it would render it ineffective. And so that's what they carried, but that's not what Paul is referring to here. In fact, Paul is talking about a gladius. Now, I brought what a gladius probably would have looked like. It was about a two, two and a half foot sword that they would have carried right on their hip pocket. And they used this for close encounters, hand-to-hand combat. Obviously, you can't do that with a spear effectively. So they would get out this little short sword. And if someone was coming up to them, they would obviously try to kill them with this sword. Now, I looked up some things because I don't know a lot about the Roman guard and how they fought. And when they were trained, they were not trained to slice somebody. They were trained to take this sword and thrust it into the enemy and stick it into a heart or stick it into another vital organ. So when they did that, they would kill them. They weren't messing around. And I tell you that because, yeah, that's very gruesome and I apologize for that, but... 
When we're talking about this enemy, Paul is not messing around either because our enemy is not far away. If he was far away, then he would have told us to take the pillum, take this javelin, and throw it and hope that you hit the enemy that's coming 100 yards away. But he's not saying grab your pillum. He's saying grab your gladius. Grab your short sword because the enemy is going to go toe-to-toe with you. He will do whatever it takes to take you down. You have everything on that you need from a defensive perspective. But now you need to fight back. And Paul says the only weapon that you'll be able to use to defeat the enemy is the word of God. Now a question that I want to ask you this morning Speaking of our enemy is this, who is our enemy? And you may say, well, we've been talking about the devil or Satan and those underneath of him the whole time. And I would say, yes, that is true. In fact, Paul tells us in verse 12, for we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of this unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. He's saying, look, if you're going to fight an enemy, you're not fighting flesh and blood. You are fighting against this unworld, this unseen world. You're not fighting against people. You're fighting against Satan. And before I tell you how to use this effectively, I have to pause and be honest with you. Because I see a lot of Christ followers using this as a weapon. But they're not using it to fight off the real enemy. They're using it to fight off people. Have you ever noticed in our culture that a lot of people aren't reading their Bibles? There are people who know what the Bible says and they've grown up reading it. They're not reading it. There are people who have tried to read it, maybe didn't understand it, and they're not reading it. There's people that have heard about what the Bible says, and maybe it has something good for their lives, but they're not reading it. And you may say, well, they're not reading the Bible because we're in a post-truth culture, right? I was with my brother-in-law yesterday, and we were talking about that, how no one has objective truth anymore. Anyone can define truth the way they want. And so if Christians think this is the truth, great, but it doesn't have to be truth for me. It can be truth for you, but not for me. And then we think, well, it's our culture's fault that we're in the state that we're in right now. I mean, look what happened this past week in Nashville. I mean, how terrible was that? And we can say, man, it's because we don't have the Bible in school anymore, and people aren't reading it, and thus our culture is going down in flames. And I would tell you that's probably true. And it's partly true, but it's not the whole truth. In fact, I'm just telling you right now, We have been given this as a weapon to use against the enemy, and yet we're using it in the wrong ways, and we've turned it and thrust it into people's hearts, thinking that will help them, that will save them, that will bring them to church, this will tell them what they need to know, and yet no one's reading it because we as Christians oftentimes use it in a wrong way. We're supposed to be fighting the real enemy, and we've turned people into an enemy. And because of that, they feel excluded. They feel judged. They feel like this book isn't really for them. It's for everybody else who has their life together. And I'm just telling you, they're not finding this from this. They're finding it from this, from our lives, 
One of the most convicting quotes that I've heard that I say all the time because it's so true is that of a hundred people, one will read the Bible, 99 will read the Christian. And we Christians aren't doing a really good job of using this as a weapon against the enemy. In fact, we're weaponizing it to use against other people. And what is heartbreaking about this is the heart of the scriptures, the message of the Bible is the gospel. And the word gospel means good news. When someone interacts with Jesus and they find out that even though they've lived their life apart from Jesus, they've betrayed Jesus, this tells them that if they trust in Jesus, they can have life after death and life here. It's good news. Those of you in this room that know Jesus and recognize what this says, you know how good news works. It has changed your life. But there's too many people in our world that if we were to go up to them and say, well, the Bible's good news, they would laugh in your face and they would say, no, it's not. It's bad news. Because every Christian that I talked to uses this as a weapon against me, not an invitation for me. This Bible should be opened by every single person. And every single person should be able to read that we're all level at the cross. There is no sin that is worse than any other sin except blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's the only one that Jesus says, hey, that's above all. But everything else is equal. And yet people that don't open this, they don't think that because we as Christians have failed them. And they don't want to open the Bible because they feel like we're going to thrust it into their hearts instead of inviting them to open it and to open our lives to show them how it's changed our life and how it can change yours. I'm so guilty of this. There are times when I use this to win an argument where Jesus says, I didn't give this to you to win an argument. I gave you this to invite others to discover life. I can win arguments myself, thank you. That's not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to open it, learn it, let it get to your heart, and, let it, and live such a life that people that are with you that don't know this will want to open it too. Church, we have to stop using this like this and stop thrusting it into people's lives thinking, oh, if I really show them that, they're going to really come to know Jesus. I don't know anyone that has felt judged and wanted to come to Jesus. But I do know that people that have felt loved and accepted for who they are and we trust Jesus to change them, not us, they are the ones that end up trusting Jesus. I don't know anyone that says, man, one time this Christian came up to me it changed my life. Like, they told me all my sins and excluded me and judged me and made me feel like crap. I can't wait to come to church next week. <laughs> but guys, that's how we act. Jesus says, it's my loving kindness that leads to repentance. You will know me by my followers' love for one another. That's what the Bible says. We have to stop using it as a weapon to thrust into the hearts of others and use it against the enemy that is wreaking havoc on our lives because when he can use it, to, when the enemy can use it to weaponize other people and not him, 
Oh, he's just sitting back, putting his feet up, drinking lemonade, and just loving life. But if we take it, and we use it to invite people, if we take it and use it to show how humbled we are about what Jesus has done for us, and we want to invite people to do that, if we take it and show people, here's why it's good news for you, if we take it and use it the way God tells us to, look out. And if we take it and we turn the sword from people to the enemy, look out. Because victory will be yours, just like it was for Jesus. You see, Jesus is about to fight the enemy in Luke chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to that right now. We're going to spend the rest of our time here. He recognized that the only way that he's going to win this war against the enemy is to use God's word the way it's intended to be used. To fight against the enemy. So the enemy has to retreat and that he can have victory as a result. Now Jesus, he has just been baptized. If you've ever been baptized, it's one of the most special days of your life. And for Jesus, the Father declared so much love So much acceptance over his life. And he's about to start his earthly ministry. For 30 years, no one knew who he was. After his baptism, he's going to go in the world and start to tell people who he is and why he's come. But before he does that, God allows Jesus to be taken into the wilderness. Verse 1 says this. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. And it was there where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus ate nothing all that time and became very hungry. Two things you need to notice here. First of all, he was led into the wilderness. When you encounter the wilderness in Scripture, it's a place where someone is tested. It's a place where there's spiritual barrenness. It's a place where people don't feel close to God at all. It's a place where they can be tempted to fall away. It's a dry spiritual place that Jesus has been brought to. And the second thing you have to notice, as he's being tempted for 40 days, he didn't eat. There's some of us in this room, we don't eat for four hours. We become hangry, hungry and angry. And you don't want to be around someone that is hangry. And when I read this about Jesus, I'm thinking, man, I'm thinking about my Next meal, Jesus couldn't eat for 40 days. I would be out in about nine hours. Satan, no food, no food, no food, I'm out. But Jesus, he stayed in the wilderness. But Satan knew that he had a tired, and a weak, and a, and, and a barren Jesus who he could go after and attack. And the enemy likes to attack you and I in the same way. If you're in a spiritually dry place in your life, if you are not taking care of yourself even physically, there's things going on emotionally, relationally, spiritually, whatever that is, he will attack. And he attacks Jesus. And I want to tell you the three ways he does that. I'm going to go through the three temptations, and then I'll go back to show you how Jesus responded. Here's the first one. Verse 3 says, Then the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God... Tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. Now, at first you're thinking, that's kind of weird, but don't forget, Jesus hasn't eaten. 
After a while, you look at a stone and you haven't eaten for a while. You're like, I, I'd eat that. I don't care if it breaks my teeth. I'm that hungry. And Satan's like, well, you don't have to even eat a stone. In fact, this stone right here, because you have power within yourself, you don't have to entrust yourself to God to do this. You can do it. Turn this stone into bread. But what's interesting also about this temptation is if you are the Son of God. Is Jesus the Son of God? Yes or no? Respond. Yes. Do you think the enemy knew that? Yes or no? Yes. So why does he say if you are? It's what J.D. Greer says here. Satan Satan puts question marks in your life where God has put periods. If Satan can make you think twice about your identity in him, if he can make you distrust that God has his very best for you, in those moments you put a question mark where God has put a period in and you don't entrust yourself into the Lord in that moment, look out. So what does Jesus do here? What would you and I do in this situation? Let's continue on in verse 5 and 7. Then the devil took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. He says, I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, the devil said, because they are mine to give to anyone I please. I will give it all to you if you worship me. Now again, Satan, he is a liar. Do you spot the lie in this temptation? He says, all things are mine. Well, they're not. They're God's. But so often, if we're not careful, we will attribute something to the enemy that is actually God's. And then, if we do that, we start to listen to him. And he starts to give us things that we want now. And for Jesus, eventually, everything was going to be his, but he had to go to the cross first. He says to him, Satan says, Jesus, take a shortcut. You're going to have power. Why not have it now? Why go through the cross? Take it right now. I've heard it said that the three temptations that are the hardest to resist in this world are power, sex, and money. When those three things are dangling in our face, we quickly forget that God said, you can have these things my way. The enemy comes around and says, yeah, but you don't really need to trust God. Let me show you how to use those in a way that benefits you. So that's what happens. Power is not a bad thing, but power that is unchecked, power that is grabbed in such a way that's a shortcut, power that is taken in a way that hurts other people. Now that's wrong. Satan wants to give Jesus that kind of power. So what does he do? What do you and I do in those situations? Temptation number three. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, if you are the Son of God, jump off. There it is again, by the way. If, if, if. Where are you putting a question mark where Jesus has put a period in your life? If. Jump off. For the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect and guard you. And they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. The scariest part of this temptation are the four, three word, or four words for the scriptures say. 
So the enemy comes to Jesus. He's like, here's what the scriptures say. What are you going to do? Now, if you've been with us the whole time, we know that one of the attributes of the enemy is a deceiver. He comes as an angel of light, which means if we're not careful, he could say something that sounds like it's from the scriptures, from the truth of God's word, and we could easily believe it if we're like, oh, wait a minute. I know it says that there, but I don't think that's how you apply it. Because here's what he wanted him to do. He wanted for Jesus to jump off in this beautiful display of God coming to rescue him. To be able to show people, like, you may not think God is with me, but he is. Let me show you that. Instead of just entrusting God's faithfulness in the everyday moments. He says, make a spectacle of it. And there are so many times in our lives when we're going through pain, we're going through suffering, we're going through hardships, we're going through things we wish we didn't. All of a sudden, Satan puts a question mark in your life. You start to listen. He brings in the scriptures in a way. That's a way to manipulate them. And then what he does is he says, look, God doesn't really love you. If he did, why doesn't he show up when you need him? That's why sometimes we're like, man, God, where are you? And we're screaming in the heavens, how could you not show up here? And we question his faithfulness. It's exactly what Satan wants Jesus to do here. In his weakest moments, question his faithfulness. You do something about it. You don't have to wait for God. You do it. It's a scary place to be. Satan is promising the world. And he's doing so in a way that manipulates the scriptures. He does so in a way that makes you question God's faithfulness, question God's character, question God's care for your life. How does it end? One of the most beautiful verses. When the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him until the next opportunity came. Hungry, tired, and weak. Jesus resists Satan for 40 days. Satan lost the opportunity to tempt him, to win him over, and Satan had to flee him until the next time. How can you do this if you're not Jesus? Because <laughs> you're like, look, Jesus, he's man, but he's the son of God too. It's probably what he tapped into. No, he doesn't. This is him fully man. Fully tempted, fully tired, and hungry and weak, just like you and I are. He is modeling to us how to win against temptation, where for the rest of your life, when you're tempted with something small or something big, you can win. There's no draw. There's no, I lost at the buzzer beater like we saw yesterday in the game. It's a full-on victory. Every time he leaves you and comes back, you can win to the next opportunity. Then you can win that and the next one and the next one. You can be undefeated against Satan and temptation. But you have to know how to win. You have to have this in your hand. You can't do it on your own. Every time you have, look what has happened in your life. There's some of us that we say, tomorrow I'm going to change. Well, tomorrow never comes. And we give in. Where the enemy says, if I can just get them looking to tomorrow, then I win. He says, no. Jesus says, you can win now, today. All you need to know is three words. The scriptures say. The scriptures say. 
If you know these words, we'll put on the screen for you. If you know these three words, you can win anything. Watch what happens. Guys, if we could put this on the screen. Thank you. Here's the first one. The temptation, distrust God. What is Jesus' response? The scriptures say people don't live on bread alone. He's like, look, I know what you're doing here. You're trying to have me distrust God, and you want me to succumb to my my needs right now, but I'm going to trust God for the latter because I believe that even though I may not have anything to eat, I don't need it because my soul is nourished because I know who God is. I know his character and I know the scriptures don't lie. How often we want instant gratification. How easy would have that have been for Jesus just to say, I'm hungry, I give up, but he doesn't because he knows the scriptures say, I don't need to do that. My soul needs a bread that no physical bread can ever satisfy. I need Jesus now and I need Jesus for the long haul. That's how you win. Stop fighting on your own. Stop trying to do it in your own power. Let's stop saying I'm too tired to read the scriptures. Let's stop saying that we don't need to do that. We need it. It's the only weapon we have. The second temptation. Grasp onto power and control. Jesus replied, the scriptures say, he takes his sword and thrusts it into the enemy. You must worship the Lord your God and what? Serve him only. He said, here, take this. It's power. And Jesus says, I want power too. But the power that comes from my kingdom is to serve people. I don't need to be over people. I don't need control. The power that my God wants me to have, that he blesses his servanthood, his humility. There's some of you in this room that have believed that Satan wants you to have this power over your family, over your coworkers, over other people, and you take it, and Satan has you in his grip, and you are losing so much because you continue to want to control. But if you realize that true win, true power comes from serving others and humbling yourself, you will resist so much temptation because you know that's exactly what the scriptures say. The third part here, to doubt God's faithfulness. Jesus responded, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. Jesus is saying, guys, or enemy, I don't need a spectacle. Even when Jesus is on the cross, he goes, God, where are you? But he goes through with it anyways. Because he knows the faithfulness of God. He knows what the word says about him. And even in Jesus' darkest moments, he clings to that. And after this, it says that Satan had to flee him. Where does your strength come from? Where does your power come from? If you're losing the battle of temptation, if you're losing this battle against the enemy, are you fighting with what the world gives you? Are you fighting with the scriptures? The sword of the spirit, the only thing that can withstand the onslaught of the enemy. At the chapel, we call engaging in the scriptures the row, circle, chair, and go. This is the way that we learn about the scriptures. This is the way that as we look at the gospels, we see Jesus has done it this way, and we're just doing what Jesus is doing. For the row, you're in the row. Just like you're being taught now, that's exactly what Jesus did with his disciples and the crowds. They gathered around him, bigger groups, smaller groups, and they were taught by Jesus, learning what the scriptures really say so then we can fight. The circle 
It's small group environments. It may be a serving group with our chapel kids team, our middle school team, or our welcome center team, or making coffee. Those people are living life together. It may be a true small group. Whatever that is, are you living life with people and living this out so you guys can fight the enemy together? The chair is spending time with Jesus alone. And I know that looks different for everybody. Sometimes for me, it's getting up early, drinking coffee and opening God's word. A lot of times it isn't because I'm lazy. (laughs) So sometimes I'm getting up in the morning and I'm using the tools that we have given you even for me. One of the tools that I love to use is the Dwell Bible app. It is free for you. You would have to pay for it. Otherwise, it's free for you as a part of our Growing Deeper Fund. As a part of that, you can go and find whatever you want to read, and it will read it to you. And I'm in the shower. I'm getting ready. I'm being filled with the scriptures during that time. This past week, I was just going through a really, really hard time, and I just searched in God's faithfulness, and a playlist came up about how God doesn't abandon us, how we don't have to fear. And I just listened to those scriptures in that category, and it changed my perspective. I got my sword back. And this is all in your welcome program, by the way, if you want to sign up. Or we have this incredible Right Now Media Library, literally thousands of videos, sermons, and small group material, things for kids. We showed this at our house that can help you grow in your time with the scriptures. It's all free. You can just follow the instructions in your welcome program. And then you take all those things, the row and the circle and chair, and then you go. You take this, and then you use it, not as a weapon, but you use it as an invitation to show people how much God loves them, and that he died for them and resurrected for them. And then you invite them into a relationship with your coworkers, your friends, your neighbors, whoever that is. The enemy is tricky, and he is so much smarter than us. That's why Paul says if you're going to win, you have to get dressed every single day with the belt of truth, with the breastplate of righteousness, with the boots of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation. Then you grab your sword and you stab the true enemy so that you can win the battle once and for all. Let's pray together. God, we don't want to just know about you in the scriptures. Pharisees knew about you, and you said they are whitewashed tombs. We want to know the scriptures, and we want it to affect our lives so that we can live them out in such a way that people will want to read the Bible for themselves. Help us to learn that the Bible is not a weapon to use to win an argument. It's an invitation for eternal life. It is good news. We repent of the ways that we have not treated it as such in this church at the chapel, the church globally, and we ask, Lord, that we would take that sword and thrust it into the true enemy so that we can be a true light in the darkness. For your glory, Jesus. In your name, amen.